Good morning, and thank you for joining us today for Utah Public Radio's Interfaith Special. I'm Emily Colby, a producer and announcer here at UPR. From social distancing to new levels of anxiety and distress, the coronavirus pandemic has rapidly transformed our lives. Today, we bring you an interfaith program featuring messages of hope tailored to this particular moment. We'll hear from Liz Lockmar of the Baha'i Faith, Eliza Rosenberg on Judaism, Patrick Mason of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, Ravi Gupta on his Hindu faith, Vicar Steve Surgeon of the Episcopal Church, Buddhist Dominic Sir, sixth-generation Shoshone Latter-day Saint Darren Perry, and Dr. Abdul Kafi Abarini of the Logan Islamic Center. They'll share stories from their traditions, scriptures, and practices they are turning to for hope, comfort, and strength. Please note that this program was produced in accordance with social distancing guidelines, so our participants recorded their pieces on their phones. Because of this, the sound quality may vary somewhat throughout the hour. Thank you for understanding, and thank you for joining us this morning. I hope these messages reassure and invigorate you. Good morning, everyone. My name is Ravi Gupta, and I am a professor of religious studies at Utah State University. I grew up in Boise, Idaho and my faith is Hinduism, or more specifically, the branch of Hinduism that is dedicated to the worship of Krishna. Earlier this year, I co-led a study abroad trip to India on behalf of Utah State University. We were a total of three faculty members and 17 students, and we had an extraordinary experience as we visited ancient monuments and beautiful temples, practiced yoga, and got to know a community of Indians who are working toward ecological sustainability. Just as we were getting ready to return home, however, something unusual happened. The world was just starting to shut down as a result of the pandemic, and travel was being restricted around the world. We were boarding our charter bus in Mumbai to go to the airport when some bystanders began shouting, Go home! Don't bring coronavirus to India! India's first cases of the virus had just arrived on a plane full of tourists from Europe, and we Americans looked all the same to them. And yet, there was another experience in India that left a lasting impression on us. At one point in our journey, a student stubbed her toe on a rock, drawing blood. An old Indian lady saw this and without hesitating grabbed the student's foot to stem the flow of blood, covering the wound with her own cloth. We were all moved by this unsolicited act of kindness for someone who was clearly a foreigner. When our group returned to the United States, we were faced with similar contradictions. We encountered people who are moved to blame the pandemic on this or that group, finding temporary relief in expressions of anger. And then there are others who risk their health and even their lives to help strangers in need, through food, through medical care, and through many other forms of service. Friends, in times of trouble, it is natural to be afraid, and the object of our fear is usually the unknown other, the neighbor who looks so different from us, the foreigner who does not talk like us, the stranger whom we've never seen before. It is natural to be afraid of those who are unfamiliar. And yet, in moments like these, we have a choice. A choice between fear and love, between blaming and embracing, between retreating and serving. Every faith teaches us to resist anger and offer kindness, to resist hostility and choose trust, to resist the urge to withdraw and choose to serve instead. There's a beautiful verse in the Bhagavad Gita the jewel of India's spiritual wisdom in this regard. The Bhagavad Gita is an ancient text spoken by Lord Krishna in the Sanskrit language, and yet its words remain as relevant today as they were thousands of years ago. Here's what Krishna has to say. Atmopamyena sarvatra samam pasyati yorjuna sukham vayadiva dukham Sayogi paramo mataha Etavanavya yo dharma Punyashlokai rupasitaha 
ಯೋಭೂತಶೋಕಹರ್ಷಾಭ್ಯಾಂ ಆತ್ಮಶೋಚತಿಹೃಷ್ಯತಿ ಹಿಯರ್ಸ್ ವಟ್ ದಟ್ ಮೀನ್ಸ್ ಒನ್ ಹೂ ಸೀಸ್ ಆಲ್ ಬೀಯಿಂಗ್ಸ್ ಲೈಕ್ ಒನ್ಸ್ ಓನ್ ಸೆಲ್ಫ್ ವೆದರ್ ಇಟ್ ಬಿ ಇನ್ ಅ ಟೈಮ್ ಆಫ್ ಹ್ಯಾಪಿನೆಸ್ ಓರ್ ಡಿಸ್ಟ್ರೆಸ್ ದಟ್ ಪರ್ಸನ್ ಇಸ್ ದ ಬೆಸ್ಟ್ ಯೋಗಿ ಇಂಡೀಡ್ ಟು ಬಿ ಜೋಯ್ಫುಲ್ ಅಪಾನ್ ಸೀಯಿಂಗ್ ಅದರ್ಸ್ ಹ್ಯಾಪಿನೆಸ್ ಆ್ಯಂಡ್ ಸ್ಯಾಡ್ ಟು ಸೀ ದೇರ್ ಡಿಸ್ಟ್ರೆಸ್ ದಟ್ ಇಸ್ ದಿ ಇಟರ್ನಲ್ ರಿಲಿಜನ್ ಡ್ಯೂರಿಂಗ್ ದೀಸ್ ಚಾಲೆಂಜಿಂಗ್ ಟೈಮ್ಸ್ ಈಚ್ ಆಫ್ ಅಸ್ ಹ್ಯಾಸ್ ಸಮಥಿಂಗ್ ಟು ಗಿವ್ ಸಮಥಿಂಗ್ ಟು ಆಫರ್ ದಟ್ ಓನ್ಲಿ ವೀ ಕೆನ್ ಗಿವ್ ಲೆಟ್ಸ್ ಫೈಂಡ್ ಔಟ್ ವಟ್ ದಟ್ ಇಸ್ ಆ್ಯಂಡ್ ಆಫರ್ ಇಟ್ ಫ್ರೀಲಿ ಟು ದೋಸ್ ಹೂ ನೀಡ್ ಇಟ್ ಥ್ಯಾಂಕ್ ಯು ಹಾಯ್ ಮೈ ನೇಮ್ ಇಸ್ ಪ್ಯಾಟ್ರಿಕ್ ಮೇಸನ್ I'm an associate professor of religious studies and history at Utah State University where I hold the Leonard J Arrington Chair of Mormon History and Culture and also serve as interim director of the religious studies program. Personally, I'm a lifelong practicing member of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Earlier this week, I was listening to Utah Public Radio and I heard a story about how economists have calculated the worth of a single human life. Well, just how much is a human life worth, you might ask? Well, according to their calculations, you're worth $10 million. I found myself both fascinated and repulsed by the exercise in quantifying the value of a human life. On a certain level, I get it. Policymakers have to make really difficult decisions weighing public health versus economic concerns, and they have to have some kind of metric so they're not just guessing. Frankly, I was gratified that the value wasn't set much lower, and also that apparently there's no value distinction based on race, age, gender, or socioeconomic status, as I feared might be the case. So $10 million is a lot of money, but is that really what any of us are worth? When he was 23, the same age as some of our undergraduates on this campus, the founding prophet of my church, Joseph Smith, received a revelation in which the Lord told him Remember the worth of souls is great in the sight of God. This sentiment was echoed by the great 20th century Christian author C.S. Lewis, who wrote, Next to the blessed sacrament itself, your neighbor is the holiest object presented to your senses. Now, as much as I love that quote, and I do, in my theology, because I don't necessarily believe in the real presence of Jesus in the communion, I would remove Lewis's qualifier and simply say that there is nothing holier, nothing, that you will ever encounter in this life than your neighbor. Why? Because of the profound truth carried in the title of one of my church's most beloved songs, learned by children as soon as they are able to sing, I am a child of God. That simple truth, that every single human being on this planet is really, truly a child of God, animates an incredibly robust sense of human dignity based on the inestimable worth of every individual person. If there's a silver lining in this terrible pandemic for me, it's that I've been inspired by the countless acts of self-sacrifice and heroism by people, often ordinary people, who have intuitively recognized the infinite worth of every person around them. As a community, nation, and world, It's like COVID-19 forced us to push a huge pause button on our collective lives. I hope when we push play again, whenever that is, that we don't forget the lesson of just how important the person next to you in the grocery line or at the restaurant counter or even in traffic really is. In the fall of 1856, a pair of pioneer companies pulling handcarts started their journey to Utah too late in the season and eventually became stranded in the wilds of western Wyoming. Weakened by the journey with rapidly depleting resources and no possibility of advancing in the driving and deepening snow, they hunkered down and prepared to die. When Brigham Young, the leader of the church, received word of their plight, he interrupted a church conference and urged his fellow Latter-day Saints, they must be brought here. We must send assistance to them. That is my religion. That is the dictation of the Holy Ghost that I possess. It is to save the people. In his characteristically blunt manner, Young asserted, Your faith, religion, and profession of religion 
will never save one soul of you in the celestial kingdom of our God unless you carry out just such principles as I am now teaching you. Go and attend strictly to those things which we call temporal or temporal duties. Otherwise, your faith will be in vain. Right now, there are a lot of people in our community, around the country, around the world, who are facing a desperate situation, whether it be their health or whether it be their finances. Many people are dying. Our worship services have already been interrupted, so I'm grateful for the efforts of every person, of any religion or no religion at all, who have recognized that all of our professions of faith and morality and ethics will be in vain if we don't do everything in our power to save life and to assist those among us who are the hardest hit, the most vulnerable, and most in need. And assuming that none of us are personally writing $10 million checks, we can be assured that any effort we make, no matter how big or small, even the most hard-headed economist will agree that in the end, it was all worth it. I'm Eliza Rosenberg. I'm a lecturer in Jewish Studies and Biblical Studies in the Religious Studies program at Utah State University in Logan. Like any religion with millennia of history, Judaism has seen its share of tragedy. COVID-19 is far from the first natural disaster it's faced. Even if, God forbid, the most pessimistic projections prove accurate, COVID-19 will be nowhere near the worst pandemic among the disasters. In the long view of history, it's easy to say that COVID-19 is no 1918 influenza, and it's certainly no bubonic plague. And although COVID-19 spreads and progresses more quickly, its death toll will probably remain orders of magnitude less than that of HIV-AIDS. But even though these points are factually correct, they are also, according to Judaism, the wrong ones to make. When we turn to the Talmud, an anthology of wisdom that Judaism holds second only to the Bible, we find an 1800-year-old saying that whoever saves one life, it is as if that person had saved the entire world. And whoever takes one life, it is as if that person had destroyed it. These are cherished proverbs invoked throughout the breadth of Jewish ethics. The saying connects to the imperative of preserving life, human life foremost, but extending to any creature that is capable of drawing breath, and also extending to harm and pain as well as outright death. The principle of preserving life takes precedence over virtually every other commandment and all religious observances. It does not matter whether our efforts will work, as in the case of an ox that falls into a ditch, or whether our efforts will mostly fail, as in the case of a herd of oxen swept away in a flash flood. We cannot do enough to stop the disaster, but we can do, and we must. What is interesting about Judaism is its strong aversion, in most cases, to theologizing disasters. Judaism forbids asking why a particular fate has befallen anyone, much less answering the question, which doesn't mean these things never happen. It is permitted to contemplate the general question of apparently undeserved suffering, which is technically known as the problem of theodicy. Two entire books of the Bible, Job and Ecclesiastes, are devoted to this question of divine justice. Significantly, though, neither book proposes a concrete answer to it. Ecclesiastes concludes that we must celebrate the blessings of life for as long as we have it. Job ends with a reminder that God created the entire universe and everything therein, and that it is not for human beings to know all his ways. Job speaks in terms of crocodiles and low desert windstorms, but the book offers a more universal reminder that has been all too easy to overlook. God is the author of viruses and tectonic plates no less than of human beings, and cannot be presumed not to care for them. As for the inner workings of God's will, Judaism, like Islam, excludes any notion that human beings can discover it. Contemplate it, yes. Draw conclusions, no. It's worth noting on this uh, point that the most important prayer for the dead, the mourner's Kaddish, does not reiterate the promise of resurrection for the righteous, who are a very large group per Jewish tradition. 
nor does the Hadith opine as to why the bereaved ought to feel comforted. Instead, it praises the greatness of God, hopes for the coming of peace, and leaves the rest in silence. In other words, Judaism doesn't tend to offer messages of hope. What it tends to offer are actions. I'm reminded of Rabbi Abraham Joshua Heschel, one of the most important Jewish theologians of the 20th century. Heschel, who was among the only members of his family to escape the Holocaust, later became a theological partner of some of the 20th century's most important Christian figures, including the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King, Jr., Reinhold Niebuhr, and the Cardinals of the Second Vatican Council. With a patience and an eloquence that are lost in any summary, Heschel suggested that focusing on why God allows terrible things to happen is an excuse for not doing anything about them. His words strikingly encapsulate the flavor of Judaism's response to suffering. It's easy for many of us to wonder what we can do in the face of this pandemic. This is true whether we're Jews, Buddhists, creedal Christians, Hindus, Latter-day Saints, Muslims, Sikhs, or members of the many other religious communities that make up the diversity of Utah. Not all of us are janitors, keeping buildings clean to stop the spread of the virus, or grocery workers, undertaking great risks for little pay in order to supply life's necessities, or healthcare providers, exhausting themselves as the situation threatens to exhaust their hope. And many of us have abruptly lost the economic means to support people worse affected than ourselves. So what can we do? There are few people who could put the answer as eloquently as Rabbi Heschel and I most assuredly am not among them. But I think it's possible to formulate an answer that begins to do honor to his wisdom. And that is something along the lines of this. We can observe the obligation to preserve life by observing quarantine procedures, no matter how difficult we find them. We can demand that corporations and governments provide a living wage and livable conditions to the agricultural laborers, grocery staff, maintenance professionals, and medical support personnel who provide livable conditions for all of us. If we are able, and if we observe the necessary precautions, we can drop off food and supplies to neighbors who are more vulnerable than us. If they would welcome hearing it, we can reassure our neighbors that they are in our prayers. We can communicate electronically with people who are isolated, alone or with others, and simply listen as they express their fear, anguish, and pain. And we can let go of pride and have the grace to let others do the same for us. We are now joined by Dr. Abdul Kafi Abarini from the Logan Islamic Center. In the name of God, the most gracious, the most merciful, all praises are due to God, Lord of the whole universe. In this short message, I present the Muslim perspective in COVID-19 and how to deal with it. Just to give you some background about the Muslim perspectives, Muslims derive their worldview from two main sources, the Quran, which is considered by Muslims as the exact word of God, and secondly, Muhammad, the prophet of Islam, who is seen by Muslims as the exemplification of the word of God. At the time of Muhammad, when he was uh, faced with any difficulty, he all the time had recourse to prayer because he believed that God is in complete control of everything and that God had the solution for everything. At the same time, Prophet Muhammad reminded his people that these difficult situations, these difficult times are reminders of our vulnerability as human beings and our need to keep God in our minds and hearts. As for dealing with epidemics in particular, there are uh, quite a few sayings by Prophet Muhammad about such cases. In one that I personally like, Muhammad says, 
there's no one who is struck by a, a plague. Uh, this the word plague actually at that time uh, referred to anything similar to an epidemic, anything that will strike the masses, multiple people, many people, that will influence the life, affect the lives of many people. So he says, there is no one who is struck by a plague or epidemic and yet stays in his or her place while patient and knowing that nothing strikes him or her except with the will of God, this person has the reward of a martyr. This saying is a call for sacrifice, patience, and trust in God at the time of difficulty in particular. In another saying, Muhammad states that if there is an outbreak of an epidemic or plague, in a land, do not enter it. And if the epidemic struck a land, strikes a land in which you live, do not leave it. This saying is a reminder of the idea of quarantine, of the quarantine, and the notion that we need to protect not only ourselves, but also others, by containing the harm in one place. My final message here is to trust in God, to look for God's creation during these difficult times and to hope for the best for humanity. And to remember that we humans are special and dear creation to God. We have survived many epidemics before and with the will of God, we will succeed in this one as well. Peace and blessings on you all. Good morning to you all. My name is Dominic Sir, and I live in northern Utah in the Cache Valley with my wife Jeannie and our dog Toby. Probably uh, all of you are familiar with the word karma. Uh, Americans use it pretty freely. It's in the English dictionary, but it's an ancient Sanskrit word actually, and I want to talk about it from the traditional Buddhist perspective for just a couple of moments. This term karma literally means action. And according to the Buddha's teachings, there are three types of actions, right? Actions of the body and speech and actions of the mind. But it's really the mind that's the most important because what we think animates what we say and do with our bodies. So the most important type of action is mental action. And according to the doctrine of karma, our actions become our habits and our habits become our character and our character becomes our destiny, right? Anything we do over and over again becomes easier, comes easier to us, right? Actions become habits and habits unchecked become more than just behaviors. They become core components of our personality. And according to the Buddha's teachings, right? Our character, our personality comes to dominate our destiny and what we experience in the future, both in this world and the next. In other words, we are what we pay attention to. I've always found this rather uh, profound, for lack of a better term. Right? If you're like me, you might often spend a lot of time thinking about the future or thinking about the past. Right? You are what you pay attention to. The problem is everything is change. Everything is fluid and in flux. Nothing is stable. Sarva samskara nityam, everything changes. So if we are what we pay attention to and everything is changing, what ends up happening is we end up projecting a lot on an uncertain, unpredictable future. And if, and if the pandemic's brought anything into stark relief, it's the fact that the future is uncertain. And we also end up reliving and rehashing the past. These become our primary mental habits. And because of that, we miss out on the opportunities found in the present. Right? The other outcome is that constantly thinking about the future or the past brings about worry and anxiety, and they don't help us. From the Buddhist perspective, the pandemic offers us an opportunity to really make use of the Buddhist teachings, to really reflect on and contemplate on what's important in our lives. Worry and anxiety won't help us. 
nothing outside of us, no job, no status, not even a partner or a bank account, right? Nothing can provide us with consistent, long-term, stable satisfaction. That's, that's up to us. So what to do? The Buddha taught that to contemplate change and impermanence is to be guided and blessed by all the Buddhas, in fact. So how to do that? How to meditate on change in order to create a new kind of mental habit? that can move us away from the typical anxieties and worries that dominate our day-to-day life, especially these days when we're restricted and stuck at home. You know, if you're like me, you're stuck at home socially isolated. You know, if you're like me, your employment future is uncertain. If you're like me, you might have student debts to pay. Constantly thinking about those things doesn't help me throughout the day. But just paying attention to my own breath a couple times a day is really helpful. And that's what I wanted to mention. That's the simplest way to develop a new habit, a new mental habit, right? Pay attention to your breath. Sit up straight. You don't have to be rigid like a ramrod, right? Just straight so your breathing passage is clear. Or lie down on your back. When you're not tired, when, when you're awake, try this. Just take some deep, relaxing breaths. Huh? The relationship between the breath and our state of mind is an intimate one. And I invite you all to just pay attention to your breath. To sit down and Say for the next minute or two minutes, I will do nothing but pay attention to the sensation of breath as it passes over my nostrils, down my esophagus, the rise and fall of the abdomen, and the sensation of exhalation. Try it. Your breath is always there and available to you. It's a simple meditation. Simple but not easy. You'll notice, as soon as you start, just taking a few breaths has a good effect. It calms the nervous system. But if you do it long enough, a challenge arises. Thoughts and feelings. Thoughts and feelings arise and distract us. But the purpose of the Buddhist meditation on breath is to develop a new mental habit. So when distractions, thoughts and feelings, thoughts about the future, the past, feelings of worry, doubt, whatever, even itches, when they arise, don't judge them, but don't chase after them. Don't cling on to them. The point of meditating on the breath is to develop non-judgmental awareness. Just simply note, I'm distracted, and then come back to the breath. The end result is that we develop a new mental habit, the capacity to observe our thoughts and feelings instead of just being victim to them. This is a really important opportunity for Buddhists and non-Buddhists alike. And it's one that the pandemic offers us because so many of us are at home and restricted. If you're healthy, if you have enough food today, I invite you to contemplate the sensation of your breath. It's been helpful to me. It's been helpful. It just helps us develop some distance between ourselves and our thoughts and feelings. And that way we don't react to them so much, but observe them. We learn something about our minds. And naturally, a kind of sense of empathy arises. Once we become more familiar with the nature of our own minds, we also begin to develop a kind of compassion for others because we understand the anxiety and worries of others stem from the same fundamentally human experience of searching for contentment and satisfaction. The pandemic is difficult, but it offers people the opportunity to develop the spiritual qualities of the heart, love and compassion for others, and patience and forbearance. That that all religious and spiritual traditions mark as the characteristics of an elevated spirituality. I'm no saint or sage, but... um, 
in the years I've been studying Buddhism. This is something I've learned that rings true more now than ever. I wish you all well. I wish you all health and joy and prosperity. Next, we're joined by Vicar Steve Sturgeon of St. John's Episcopal Church. The Gospel reading from this past Sunday is one of my favorites. It is the story of the two disciples on the road to Emmaus, which is found in the 24th chapter of the Gospel according to Luke. It is a compelling story, with a clear beginning, middle, and a sudden plot twist ending. The story takes place on the very first Easter Sunday, sometime in the afternoon apparently, and two disciples are walking from Jerusalem to the nearby town of Emmaus. Our knowledge of the exact details is limited. We only know the name of one of the disciples, Cleopas, and this is the only mention of him in the Bible. We are not even actually sure of where the town of Emmaus was. Archaeologists today have several possibilities, but no definitive location. Our confusion about these exact details probably matches the confusion that the disciples themselves were feeling that day. How strange and horrifying the past few days would have been for them. Only a week earlier, these disciples had been with Christ as they made a triumphant entrance into Jerusalem. The overthrow of the Roman occupation, the restoring of the throne of David, and the ushering in of the messianic age all seemed at hand. And then, in the space of less than 24 hours, Jesus had been arrested, convicted, and executed. The dream had been dashed, and now the disciples were scattered and in hiding, fearing for their own lives. Were these two disciples fleeing Jerusalem in the hopes of finding safety in the hinterlands? Or instead were they leaving in defeat and despair? What was going through their minds just then? And where were they headed after Emmaus? As I read the beginning of this Bible passage, the music that starts to play in my head is the old talking head song, We're on a Road to Nowhere. Luke recounts that as the two disciples were walking along discussing the terrible and confusing events of the past few days, Jesus walks up and joins them on their journey. Now it is odd enough to have a dead man walk up to you, but what is particularly odd is that the eyes of the disciples, according to Luke, were kept from recognizing him. What a strange phrase. Note the passive sentence structure. Their eyes were kept from recognizing him. My old high school English teacher would have immediately flagged this phrase and written in the margins in big red ink, who kept them from seeing? Good question. The text does not say. Did God keep the disciples from recognizing Jesus? While this idea might seem odd to us, there is biblical precedent for that type of action. I would, however, like to suggest a different explanation for the disciples' blindness that their failure to recognize Jesus came from within themselves. They only allowed themselves to see Christ in a particular way. Throughout the Gospels, we repeatedly read about how the disciples just do not get it when it comes to Jesus' mission. He calls people to a life of repentance and service to others, but they bicker amongst themselves over which disciple is the greatest, jockey to sit closest to Jesus, and complain when he tells depressing stories about his coming suffering. Jesus warns them about the yeast of the Pharisees and Herod, and the disciples instead worry about the fact that they do not have any bread to eat. They already had made up their minds as to the role that Jesus should play, and they refused to notice that Jesus was not following their script. Even in this gospel passage, Jesus chastises the disciples for not understanding his mission. He goes so far as to interpret for them the scriptural references about himself and his mission, and still the two disciples do not recognize him. It would be easy for us to feel smugly superior to these clueless disciples, but are we really any better off than they were? Are we not just as guilty of preventing ourselves from seeing Christ? 
In my own life, I took about a 15-year hiatus from Christianity. I even had multiple Peter moments when I denied having any connection to Christ. And yet, in hindsight, I can now see clearly those times that Jesus walked with me on my own journey. Jesus appeared to me in many different forms, in the spiritual influence of an uncle, in the compassionate charity of an impoverished cafeteria worker, in the quiet religious confidence of a college classmate from Kenya, and in many other guises over the years. How often do we refuse to see Christ in others? I think this is a testament to the hubris of humans, that we think we can somehow control God. We are no more able to put limits on God than we can put the whole ocean in a Tupperware dish. When we are unable to see Christ in others, it is not necessarily because Christ is not there, but more likely because we prevent ourselves from seeing Christ there. The story of the disciples on the road to Emmaus speaks to us in a different way this year than in the past. We too, like the disciples, are numb and in shock about how the world suddenly changed seemingly overnight. Just as the disciples might have been fleeing Jerusalem for their own safety, so too there are reports in the media about people fleeing big cities to go and stay in more isolated areas. And like the disciples, we are all going through the process of learning to see the Jesus that is right in front of us, but who we have perhaps not noticed before. The most obvious Jesuses we are discovering these days are all the medical people working hard to save lives and find a cure. But Jesus also shows up in unexpected ways and places in the simple acts of kindness that people are doing for friends, family, neighbors, and strangers. Perhaps we will be lucky, and these gestures will not be abandoned as we try to return to normal. For me, it is a great source of comfort to know that even in a time of fearful isolation for his disciples in those long-ago days, Jesus came and offered compassion to them then. Just as in a time of fearful isolation, Jesus comes and offers compassion to us now. We can draw comfort from the fact that Jesus seeks us out when we are at our most isolated, physically, mentally, spiritually, or financially, and offers hope to everyone. Even when we are feeling overwhelmed and alone, Christ is there to offer us strength and assurance. Not a shallow and phony assurance, but the assurance of someone who has known pain and suffering firsthand, and was able to not just overcome it, but triumph over it. The challenge we face these days is not just to see Christ in the actions of others, but for each of us to act as Christ for others, to be there for one another so no one feels alone during this time, and so that in the future people will look back on this era and remember it not just for the suffering, but also for the compassion. I want to close with a favorite evening prayer of mine that was written by St. Augustine of Hippo in the 5th century AD, which I think expresses how we are called to be advocates of compassion during these times. It reads, Keep watch, dear Lord, with those who work or watch or weep this night, and give your angels charge over those who sleep. Tend the sick, Lord Christ. Give rest to the weary, bless the dying, soothe the suffering, pity the afflicted, shield the joyous, and all for your love's sake. Amen. My name is Darren Perry, and I am the former chairman of the Northwestern Band of Shoshone Nation. I am a sixth-generation Shoshone Latter-day Saint. We here in the Cache Valley are lucky because we get to wake up to the most incredible views of the mountains each morning. They remind us every day to be thankful for the teachings of my people and the blessings that we have. I have always believed that ancient tribal cultures 
have important lessons to teach the rest of the world about the interconnectedness of all living things and the fact that our very existence is dependent upon the relationships we have with one another. Take a look around you next time you go for a walk. We are as varied and colorful as a beautiful field of wildflowers, each bringing with us our own individual characteristics. As you look around, I hope that you can truly see each other and find the good in what we see. We need to be able to see each other through each other's eyes. When this happens, the possibilities of powerful collaborations are endless. When we see all of the Creator's children the same, we begin to appreciate the diversity that we all bring to the table. I hope we see people for who they are rather than someone who appears to be different. Society tends to divide us up into those in-between spaces, those who are biracial, bicultural, multi-ethnic, not this, but certainly not that. I want you to know that if you fall into one of those categories like me, that you are not alone. There are many of us who walk this tension together, but we need to stand strong. The differences that we all bring to the table can be the strength that we can all draw from each other. As we educate ourselves, we begin to create a space that will allow us to have honest and open discussions that will allow us to not only talk about those things that make us different, but also talk about the things that we have in common. Gandhi said, Our greatest ability as humans is not to change the world, but to change ourselves. The world that we live in today can be very outward-looking. We spend most of our time in the material world seeking to improve our lives and achieve success. However, we can learn a lot by taking an inner journey and reconnecting with our own spirit. When we become dissatisfied with our outer lives, a journey inward can be the answer we seek. Native American beliefs include a strong reverence for our ancestors. We realize that we are here only because of those who went before us. When we look at our lives in this way, we become less individualistic and learn that we are all dependent on one another. Understanding our own histories will help us love and accept other cultures. Over the years, as I have shared my culture with students, I am often asked how you become a chief. I tell them that when a young Shoshone boy or girl does an act of kindness or service, the chief will give them one eagle feather. I then ask the boy or girl what would happen if that boy or girl kept doing nice things for people and providing service to their community, the answer is always the same. They would get more eagle feathers. I then ask and tell them when the chief is ready to die, he calls everyone together and he says, I want everyone here to show me your eagle feathers. The person with the most eagle feathers would then become the chief. You see, the chief isn't always the toughest or the bravest or the loudest. The chief is always the one who has lived a life of service to their communities. So my message today is go be a chief. The great spirit's message is one of hope, love, 
and inclusion. The second great commandment is to love our neighbors as ourselves. We do this when we speak medicine words to those around us. They are words that will bless, inspire, and empower. When we speak medicine words, we build unity and love, and we strengthen those around us. Hi there, friends. My name is Liz Lockmar, and I'm a follower of the Baha'i faith. I was raised in Logan, Utah as a Baha'i. Baha'is believe that humankind is one family, and the earth is one home, and that all religions come from the same source. Some of the guidance I'm going to be sharing with you today are scriptures from the Baha'i faith, or it is guidance we have been given by the International Governing Body of the Baha'i Faith, the Universal House of Justice. This first writing is by Baha'u'llah, who is the prophet founder of the Baha'i Faith. The well-being of mankind, its peace and security, are unattainable unless and until its unity is firmly established. This next quote is from the Universal House of Justice. It is directly related to the pandemic. However difficult matters are at present, and however close to the limits of their endurance some sections of societies are brought, humanity will ultimately pass through this ordeal, and it will emerge on the other side with greater insight and with a deeper appreciation of its inherent oneness and interdependence. This next guidance is from the son of the prophet founder of the Baha'i Faith, Abdul Baha, and he gives us guidance on how to face difficulties. In a day such as this, when the tempests of trials and tribulations have encompassed the world, and fear and trembling have agitated the planet, Ye must rise above the horizon of firmness and steadfastness with illumined faces and radiant brows, in such wise that, God willing, the gloom of fear and consternation may be entirely obliterated, and the light of assurance may dawn above the manifest horizon and shine resplendently. This next quote is by Shoghi Effendi, who was appointed as the guardian of the Baha'i faith. In this quote, he talks about the purpose of suffering. Nothing but a fiery ordeal, out of which humanity will emerge, chastened and prepared, can succeed in implanting the sense of responsibility which the leaders of a newborn age must arise to shoulder. The next writing is by Abdu'l-Baha. When calamity striketh, be ye patient and composed. However afflictive your sufferings may be, stay ye undisturbed, and with perfect confidence in the abounding grace of God, brave ye the tempest of tribulations and fiery ordeals. The next quote is a writing by Shoghi Effendi. When such a crisis sweeps over the world, no person should hope to remain intact. We belong to an organic unit, and when one part of the organism suffers, all the rest of the body will feel its consequence. This is in fact the reason why Baha'u'llah calls our attention to the unity of mankind. This next guidance is given by the Universal House of Justice. Through reliance on the boundless spiritual powers latent within you, strive to become the embodiment of reassurance and hope to family and friends. The essence of confidence to every heart, a healing balm to all who suffer, and a secure torch for the flame of the love of the true friend. The following is an excerpt from the writings of Abdu'l-Baha. Never lose thy trust in God. Be thou ever hopeful, for the bounties of God never cease to flow upon man. 
If viewed from one perspective, they seem to decrease, but from another they are full and complete. Man is under all conditions immersed in a sea of God's blessings. Therefore be thou not hopeless under any circumstances, but rather be firm in thy hope. This next guidance is from Abdu'l-Baha about the importance of the unity of the human world. The divine purpose is that men should live in unity, concord, and agreement, and should love one another. Consider the virtues of the human world and realize that the oneness of humanity is the primary foundation of them all. Read the Gospel and other holy books. You will find their fundamentals are one and the same. Therefore, unity is the essential truth of religion, and when so understood, embraces all the virtues of the human world. The following is guidance from the Universal House of Justice. May your minds be ever bent upon the needs of the communities to which you belong, the condition of the societies in which you live, and the welfare of the entire family of humanity to whom you are all brothers and sisters. And in your quiet moments when no course of action other than prayer seems possible, then we invite you to add your supplications to our own and ardently pray for the relief of suffering. This final writing is by Baha'u'llah. The utterance of God is a lamp whose light is these words. Ye are the fruits of one tree and the leaves of one branch. Deal ye one with another with the utmost love and harmony, with friendliness and fellowship, he who is the day star of truth beareth me witness. So powerful is the light of unity that it can illuminate the whole earth. You've joined us this morning for Utah Public Radio's Interfaith Special, featuring messages of hope regarding the coronavirus pandemic. You can find this program on our website at any time if you wish to return to these messages. Thank you to our participants who recorded these on their phones and shared how they are finding strength amid uncertain times. We've been joined by Liz Lockmar, Eliza Rosenberg, Patrick Mason, Ravi Gupta, Steve Sturgeon, Dominic Sir, Darren Perry, and Abdul Kafi Abarini. And thank you for listening. Have a peaceful Sunday.